Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of PSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled PSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to April the 25th, 2017, episode 1991, How Preparedness Leads to Liberty. And remember, while Rewind episodes are commercial-free, you can always help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by doing your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. All right, with that, let's uh, get into the main topic today, which, of course, is How Preparedness Leads to Liberty. Um, I, I was trying to think of what to do this week, last week, as I was, you know, thinking ahead into my Tuesday show where it's a standalone show like this. And I thought we hadn't done anything on basic preparedness in a while, but I also thought there's so much information on basic preparedness available on the site. Uh, so many episodes about it. The people that, that want to dig into, like, how to start out, where to start out, and all. Not that we won't ever do it again, but maybe it wasn't time to do that. Maybe if somebody was interested in that, we could just say, hey, just put in basic preparedness or getting started or something in the search box, and you'll find tons of shows that, that talk about that. But, but I did have kind of a craving to go back to kind of the roots of, of TSP. You know, the show will become nine years old in June, and we're not far from June. We're talking, you know, we can measure that in weeks now. And uh, I, I think every once in a while it's important that we kind of have these go-back-to-the-basics uh, episodes because it's what made the show what it is. It's what made the show successful. It's what built the community around the show. And if you go to my TSP forum profile, and there's a link in today's show notes so you can find it, you're going to see a bit of text. That text says, Liberty is precious. Fight to keep it. I guess it's about eight years since I put those words into my profile, and my view of the value of liberty has only increased since that time. Since day one, I have said the real mission of the Survival Podcast is to educate people to the concepts of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And to me, those four ideas cannot be separated. I, I look at them as the four pillars that the TSP community is built upon. And again, they're self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And this does go back far enough that I remember like in our second or maybe third year when we were doing the Self-Reliance Expos, and I, I remember having listeners say, well, come help you work your booth. I'm like, well, I'll give you a shirt. That's what I can do. And so we gave listeners, and I remember teaching people when they, were, when they were like, well, what do we tell people when they come and ask what this is about? I said, you tell them the Survival Podcast is a show about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And I remember that first expo that we did in Denver, Colorado, and I had, it was, it was probably the most successful self-reliance expo that I had ever seen done. Like, I thought they were going to be great, and they kind of petered out with, with attendance uh, over the years to where we don't do them anymore. Um, but that one was packed. That one was packed for two days. And I remember hearing audience members say those words to people over and over again. And, and, and it was great to have the community helping because there was no way I could handle as many people as were coming by our booth and talking to people and uh, telling them a little bit about what the show was all about. So that's, I mean, that really is the cornerstone. And it's actually the four pillars that are the four cornerstones of what we do. So I thought today that we could start out by let's just do a little re refresh and, and define those words. And you can define words with a dictionary. You can define words by popular meaning. Or 
often communities develop their own, you know, meaning around words. And as long as they're actually still kind of tied into that whole dictionary thing and that you're not rewriting words for the sake of doing it, I think you're in good standing. And, and that's kind of where I'm at with these. I'm not trying to give you, you know, uh, the, the Webster's Dictionary direct definition, but what we're talking about and how we define these terms here at the Survival Podcast. Let's start out with self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So many people view those concepts as the same, and I've actually done entire episodes on the difference between self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And to me, they are different, because self-sufficiency to me is the percentage of your needs met by your own systems, is a simple way of defining it. In other words, when nothing's gone wrong, If you're producing 30% or 40% of your food, your self-sufficiency as far as the needs for your food is 30% or 40% or 50%, whatever it is. Okay, So it's, it's measured in a percentage, and it's an ongoing thing. If you uh, put, put solar on your roof, because it makes sense for you, and you're producing 80% of your electricity, and you're relying on the grid for 20% of it, then you're 80% self-sufficient as far as your direct energy needs. So when we start thinking that way, we realize, well, then, well, maybe it does make sense. Maybe there is a difference between self-reliance. So how will we define self-reliance? I define self-reliance as the duration and time you can live well without systems of support measured on an individual level. So what I mean by that is let's just say you don't have any form of light in your house if the power goes off other than a flashlight, but you've got a flashlight. And you've got a certain number of batteries for it. And that'll give you a certain number of hours that you can still have light when it's dark out in your house. Well, that's, that's, that's your duration of self-reliance. That's how long you can be self-reliant before then you need a new input to be able to go forward. And if you think about how that's different from self-sufficiency, we don't need that flashlight to be able to basically see our way around the house unless the power's out. Where we're using the food from the garden, whether there's a good, you know, whether times are tough or even if they're not, right? Where that, that's an ongoing thing. Now you might say, well, I use my flashlight all the time. I do too. Don't try to nitpick it. Just try to understand what I'm saying. So we'll think about it with food. So it's an apples to apples comparison, quite literally. If we have the ability to provide ourselves 50% of our calories from our property, we're doing really good, by the way, if we can do that then we're 50% self-sufficient. But if we've also stored enough food that we could go six months without going to the grocery store, between our self-sufficiency of 50% and our storage, then we are six months self-reliant on food. This, this, I, hopefully that makes sense. Because that leads us to our next one. And this is a word that's often used by parents of young children as they're trying to get them up and older and you know get past failure to launch and things like this. Independence. What what really is independence? You know, we celebrate Independence Day in this country as almost as almost a a, a, a pseudo holy holiday uh, for some. Independence Day, the fourth of July, when we declared our independence from Great Britain. Well, what does independence really mean for you as an individual? To me, it means the ability to control your own life on your own terms. It is that simple. So that I have enough independence that if I want to go to work today, I can. And if I want to take the day off, I can. Not necessarily I'm saying that it's a good decision to take the day off work. 
I'm not saying you have so much freedom that you can just not work. I'm just saying you have the ability to make that decision for yourself. There's no one who will come and say, there's a gun to your head, get to work, slave. You have that type of autonomy. You decide who, will your, who your friends will be, where you're going to go, who you're going to work for within the, what's available to you. You understand, independence. It, it means literally being independent from the influence of others. So what is liberty? Liberty is the freedom to fully exercise your independence. That, that's, that's really an important concept. So I'm going to say it again. Liberty is the freedom to fully exercise your independence. Now, that doesn't mean there's no consequences for doing it foolishly. But those consequences then are what we would call market consequences, right? They're not imposed on you by some third party who's made a judgment that you should not be able to do that. And that leads us to something that's, that's very difficult for many people to accept. Liberty is not the condition of any people in the world today. Not full and total liberty. And I, I won't get into voluntarism and things like that today at all, I promise you. Because no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you'll probably agree there are things that people are restricted from doing that there is no need to restrict people from doing. Even if you don't go as far as I do down that road, I guarantee you, if we start looking at the laws and regulations in our country and things that people have been put in jail for and things that people have had their lives ruined for, every single person that listens to this show without turning it off in the first five minutes and never listening again anyway would be able to make a pretty long list of liberties that are infringed upon by the state. So when we, we look at that, it's not comfortable. We've been brought up to believe and we've been conditioned to believe that we're the freest nation in the world. And I would say in some ways we are, in other ways we dramatically fall short of other nations. It's where those freedoms lie, what you're free to do and what you're not free to do. There's, there's no doubt that there's freedoms that we enjoy in this country that in other nations people don't enjoy. But I have a very good friend that I used to work for, and a friend of his decided he had enough of things. He was one of the people that did pretty well for himself during the dot-com boom and was able to get his stock options exercised and out before the big pop. Uh, he was able to put away a couple million dollars into retirement uh, as a pretty young person and then was willing to even pay some penalties to get some access some to, to some of it, and uh, had picked up another job and done pretty well, and uh, had saved his money. He was a single guy. Uh, and he moved to Thailand. He bought a small island. He put in a Frisbee golf course, and he has girls driving around on it still today. I talked to my buddy Mike not that long ago, and that guy's still doing it. Girls driving around on little golf carts, selling you know people uh, beer off the back of golf carts. No permits, no licenses. I think he has to give a little bit of uh, grifting money to the local you know, authorities so they leave him alone. But it's, it's less expensive than the permits to do it here. And nobody bothers him. It's not illegal. If you just set up a little thing like that, first of all, you'd be on a wetland, so you can't do it. Second of all, you cut trees down, so you can't do it. Third of all, you're selling liquor without a license. You see what I'm saying? The, the, the condition of liberty is very subject to what you want to do and being able to do the things that you want and how important those things are to you. But in the end, none of us have the freedom to fully exercise our independence. And again, that does not mean exercise your independence without consequences, but it means the consequences are true and real consequences. In other words, when the government says to you, if you possess this plant, 
we will come and we will arrest you and we will put you in jail because the plant is bad. Okay, that's not a natural consequence. That's a falsely imposed consequence that hasn't existed for the majority of human existence. Now, if the plant really is bad, I know what you're thinking, it's, it's that sacred herb that people smoke. No, let's say the plant is foxglove. Let's say they determine that foxglove is so poisonous, and by the way, it is, that it shouldn't be possessed anymore. By the way, you can possess it, even though it's incredibly toxic. And you went out and possessed it, but you were smart enough to not eat it. Well, then, there's no natural consequence to that, is there? Other than you have a very pretty plant growing in your yard. But what if society says, but some child might climb your fence and see those pretty flowers and eat them. And therefore, for the good of society, you can't have them. Therefore, that plant is illegal. Then your liberty has been infringed upon. Your liberty has been infringed upon with a false, a, 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 a fake, a, a human-imposed through coercion and force consequence. Not a natural consequence. Now, if that law doesn't exist, and frankly it doesn't, and thank God it doesn't, because that would be really stupid, but you put this purple plant in your backyard and you say to yourself, I don't believe that this plant will harm me, so I'm going to consume it, and it kills you dead, that's a natural consequence. So understand when I say the freedom to fully exercise your independence, consequences go along with freedoms and liberties. And those consequences, when they're real are such that people generally learn from them very quickly and don't go very far past them, except certain self-destructive individuals. And those individuals are never constrained by law in the first place. So when we think about this and we realize how many restrictions and laws and regulations there are that prevent people from doing things or provide very onerous consequences to people doing things with no victim, And we say, why have we chosen this? Because whether you believe this or not, the American people have chosen this. Our system of a republic in the form of a, a representative democracy is not perfect. But it does give you a pretty good reflection of what people actually want. That doesn't mean people can't be manipulated to think they want one thing when they really, really want another. But in the end, what they most want on the surface will be reflected in the republic that they live in, and that is our country. And that's why when you hear about something like libertarianism, and you try to explain it to people, they're resistant to it. When you're thinking to yourself, well, how would you ever resist this? Well, that's why. Because they actually are choosing bondage over liberty. So why? The number one reason is programming, can, can, can it, programming and conditioning. <clears throat> I've said it before, but there's a reason that even the media executives sit around and when they discuss what's going to be on TV tomorrow, they call it programming. They don't call it shows. They don't call it entertainment. They call it programming because that's what it is. It's code, just like a computer. It goes in your mind, and it will elicit certain responses and certain results in your behavior, and they know this. And, of course, the programming predates television. Programming has been done through media and newspaper and social programming for a long time. But as the electronic age dawned, the opportunity for programming increased. But where... In the modern world, we really got good at programming people was the modern education system. When we took the Prussian education model and brought it to the United States in the 1880s, we brought the quintessential tool for programming the mind at a young age to conformity and obedience 
and a respect for authority. Now, a lot of people would say, say, well, Jack, a respect for authority is a good thing. It's a virtue. If the authority is just and valid and, 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 and useful to the individual that's, that's granting the authority, then the respect for the authority is, is, is a virtue. But to, to, to believe that someone has authority simply because someone else granted them authority is, is preposterous. And what I mean by this is we have granted government authority to do things like tell a person what they can or can't eat, to be blunt. Right? You fill in the, the blanks with whatever you want to on it, but we have places where that's actually done. You can't get a, a soda over a certain number of ounces in New York City, for instance. Okay, you don't have the authority to tell your, to, you tell your neighbor that they can't have a, a big gulp if they want to ruin their life with a big gulp. You don't have that authority. And if you don't have authority, you can't grant it to somebody else. So you can take your rights, you can take any authority that you have, if it's rightful authority, and you can give them to somebody else. Or you can abdicate your rights to somebody else under free will. That's okay. But you can't abdicate the free will of another individual because you don't have a right to that. Therefore, you can't, you can't grant it to somebody else. But what we have taught people in school, and this is why this is so hard for many minds to comprehend, is that if somebody has authority because the state says so, because an institution says so, because their title says so, because a bunch of people who voted for them, even though almost as many people voted against them say so, then that authority is not only real and righteous, but to be respected. And this is counter to basic human reality. If we all ended up on an island together, there's about a hundred of us there, and you didn't know me, I'm not Jack from the Survival Podcast, even if I was, I mean, seriously, but you don't even know me, we all don't know each other, we just, like, lost, right? And all of a sudden I stand up and say, you know what? I'm in charge of everything. I'm in charge of everything. How many of you would go along with that? You'd know immediately, wait a minute, I don't know who this guy is. Right? So, everybody gets together and says, Jack, you're not in charge. But you seem like a guy that wants to do good things. And, and we need a leader. But we have to have a process to make this legitimate. So, there's other people that want to lead. And we should hear from all of you. And then we'll vote. And whoever gets the most votes becomes a leader. So, two other people speak up and they make their case and I make my case. And in the end... Out of a hundred people that vote, and there's only 97 left, right? There's only 97 people left to vote because the three of us can't vote because we're, we're running. But hey, wait, our elected officials get to vote. So I get to vote for myself. The other two vote for themselves. And with my, my vote included, I get 51 votes, which means 49 people on the island do not want me in charge. But now 51 people have told the 49 to F off Jackson charge. And then I say, well, what power do I have? Well, the people that voted for me say, well, you have all of these powers. Well, wait a minute. How did I get all of that power? Just because you guys said I have it? Now, what do you think the other 49 people would do on that island? Do you think they would go, well, we'll just submit to whatever Jack wants because our democratic process elected him? Or do you think they'd say, you know what, you guys can F off. 
Silent's big enough for more than one group. We're going to go do our own. Do you think it might actually fractionalize into multiple subgroups that collaborated with each other voluntarily wherever they wanted to? That's what would happen. And in just about all traditional societies, hunter-gatherer societies especially, that's how things work. In, 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 in conventional tribalism, that's how things work. There might be a king of the tribe, but he doesn't get to decide everything for everybody. And there's certain things if he tried to do, the rest of the tribe would kill him. They outright kill him. And if people say, well, I'm, I, I don't want to be part of this, I want to go over here and be left alone, then why? Because this is natural human condition. But we've been taught through programming and conditioning, <clears throat> specifically through media and our, our educational process, we shouldn't even call it education. Some people say indoctrination. We should literally call the school's programming centers. They program the minds of our children to conform to what we have decided are the norms of society. But we've been programmed for so long, we don't even know what normal is anymore. But you know what the real word for it is? I can, I can sum up programming and conditioning in a single word. Domestication. Domestication. If you think about an animal like a, like a cow, a wild, uh, a wild member of the, the cattle family, American buffalo, um, they roam, they go where they want, they defend themselves. You know, they don't believe that they need the, the, a, a dog or a man or a fence to defend them from coyotes or wolves because they're big animals. And even though a predator can take out one of them, they simply mass together in their group and stomp the shit out of predators because they outnumber the predators. And the predators have to go find something smaller to go after. But what happens when we take cattle and we, we selectively breed them for the traits we want, we put them behind a fence, put electricity through it so that they're afraid of it, and they lose their natural defense mechanisms to where a person can walk right up to them and walk them to their own death. They're domesticated. The wild has been taken out of them. And that's what's been happen happened to us. And don't get me wrong, I don't think we should be swinging through the trees in loincloths or something like that, like Tarzan or something, some kind of mythological BS. I'm just saying there is a natural state of humanity, and that state is natural, voluntary association with others of our own kind, other, other human beings, and people that we have common ideals and common morals with. And there's basic human morality that we don't, we don't have to have a lot of uh, legal code to figure out certain things, like taking somebody else's things, stealing is wrong. We all know this. There's very few people that says, well, if you can take something by force, that makes it right. It makes it okay. It's yours. Because if you're the, the, the bigger kid in school and Jimmy has a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you don't like what you have for lunch, you can go over there and punch Jimmy in the face and take his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mike makes right and that's okay. We don't believe that. Even the people that do it don't believe it's right. They just think they can get away with it. And they have whatever twisted problem in their head that makes them willing to go violate those rights. But no one thinks it's okay, except the true psychopath. Well, what if I just said what I'm going to do to you is, I'm going to watch you work all day. And when you get your paycheck, you're going to get $100. And I'm going to come punch you and take $20 from you. But I'm going to let you keep 80 Is that okay? Well, that's tax. And just because we've elected somebody and given them a title, doesn't make it okay to steal. But yet we believe that it is. 
conditioning and programming. And then that leads to the next thing. And I know it's some of the objections that you guys are throwing out right now. But what about this and what about that in my roads and my schools and all this other stuff? It's called fear. But without the government, none of this stuff would work. Now, again, you don't have to go as far down the voluntarist road as I do to believe that we could actually exist as a, be as a being, as a species, without a state. Even though the majority of time humans have walked around, that's how we existed, let's just say that we can't and that you're right. But you would have to agree, if you're liberty-minded at all, that the state is doing so many things that it doesn't need to do to interfere with the natural state that could exist in a minimal state, okay, a minarchist state, or just a much smaller state than we have now. I'm not going to try to drag you all the way to where I want to be today. I just want you to take a couple steps forward and realize, hey, I am not allowed to behave as a natural, normal human being, and natural, normal human beings are quite okay where the species wouldn't have survived. If we were as bad as we're told we are, we would have made it. We really wouldn't have. So fear that somehow we won't have what we need. Somehow we won't be able to get by. What about the poor? You know, if we didn't have a state, what about the person who has a crime committed against them that doesn't have money to pay somebody to do something about it? As though society would just let that happen. It's fear. It's fear. And the next one is misdirected morality. See, morality is a fine thing if it's, if, it's, if it's proper morality. And we have all types of people that try to tell us what morality is supposed to be, from the statist to the, the religious, spiritualist, etc. But basic human morality, again, is well understood. We don't hurt other people. We don't take things from other people that they've rightfully acquired. I mean, honestly, if you start thinking about things that way, 99% of things that need to have a law, if there's going to be something called a law, and a law doesn't have to come from a state, okay? There could be laws without a state. We won't get into that today. But they can be covered under just those things. I can't take things from you, and I can't harm you or hurt you or use force or coercion against you. That's it. In other words, for there to be a, a crime, and again, you have to separate that from the state definition of it, for there to be a crime, there has to be a victim. Someone has to have been victimized. And saying because everybody else had some of their money stolen from them. And you didn't have money stolen from you. You victimized the other people that had their money stolen from them because you didn't do your fair share. That's nonsense. That's misdirected morality. That's why they will, they will call a case where a person didn't pay their taxes the case of the people versus. See, the government proposes to represent you because you were a good taxpayer and this jerk over here didn't pay his taxes so that we need to extort him so he'll pay too so we're representing you the people versus Mr. Burns from you know the Simpsons the people versus they have the audacity to call themselves the people as though they really do represent us and It's that misdirected morality. Another example would be the drug war. We should make marijuana illegal because it's bad for you. Well, there's a lot of stuff that's bad for me. There's a lot of things that are bad for me that aren't illegal. Cheetos are bad for you. If you eat a giant bag of Cheetos every day, like a whole big bag, and some people eat two, you're probably more likely to kill yourself or cause health problems to yourself than the person that smokes marijuana a few times a week. I'm not suggesting you go smoke marijuana. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, like, if we took a relative look at things, if we look at the number of lives and the number of 
the number of health problems caused by marijuana use versus alcohol. If we look at the number of deaths caused by alcohol every year versus marijuana, well, there's like no marijuana deaths. If you want to throw some people that have cancer in there and say, well, marijuana gave them cancer, still, it doesn't even come close to the deaths from alcohol, whether long-term abuse, uh, you know, chronic uh, immediate, or I'm sorry, immediate poisoning, deaths through traffic accidents, etc. Marijuana didn't even come close. But we said one is okay and one's not. And there are people who will be puritanical in their morality and say, well, having a beer, that's okay. Why? Well, because it's legal. Well, what about marijuana? No, that's illegal. Well, what if you're in Colorado? Um, it's still illegal under federal law, and the government should do something about it. Or, well, it's okay there. Or will these same people? Because this tide's already flowing the way it's flowing. You know that legalization of marijuana is going to happen throughout the country eventually. When that happens, will these people flip a switch and say, well, now it's okay because it's legal? Now, do you, do you realize the inconsistency there? If you think something's okay when it's legal, but not okay when it's illegal, when it's the same thing, you're not judging the action You're, you're, you're allowing a false authority to convey. Now, it might be a person that says, well, listen, I, if you want to smoke pot, I think you should, but I don't think you should walk down the street doing it in this town where it's illegal because you're going to get in trouble. Well, that's common sense. That's avoiding the, the, the manifestation of the unnatural consequence imposed by the state. That's just, that's just common sense and intelligence. But if you're going to say the person's morally wrong... Only because the action's illegal and you don't judge the morality of the action itself, you have misdirected morality. Or even if you think the action's wrong, if the action only harms the person freely choosing to engage in it, it's not your business. It's not your business. And we know this. There's this little this segment here. Programming and conditioning and domestication, fear, and misdirected morality. It's probably some of you are really challenged by it, but in your heart you know this is true. So then the question becomes, well, it's supposed to be about preparedness, Jack. So how does preparedness lead to liberty in our own minds and our hearts so that we actually yearn for liberty instead of crave oppression and cr crave the, the heavy hand of the state to protect us and worry about my roads and worry about my schools? How does preparedness? Well, number one thing that preparedness does is it removes fear. When you start lining up your life and you, you just sit down and say, listen, I'm going to figure out all the things that could go wrong. I'm going to figure out the ones that are most likely to impact my life. And I'm going to tar start taking some steps to be resilient if those things occur. Then when somebody says, well, what would happen if, if, if you know the government didn't? Well, I would be okay. Well, what about other people? Well, maybe if they took these steps, too, they would be okay, too. It wasn't hard. See, it only seems hard until you do it. Preparedness is actually dramatically simple. It's easy to do. It's not very hard. Because all of the things that we need to be prepared are readily available and, and pretty much affordable. I mean, food alone, we can be prepared for months with just rice and beans. It's not a good way to live, but hey, at least I know it's there. Well, I don't need food stamps now. I mean, you see how simple that is. Well, I, I can get by. I can get by. And, and this, this, the, the important part of the switch for people is not that they can get by. It's that if they get themselves into a point where, well, if something does go wrong, if I end up being less fortunate, I can still get by. Then you start looking around you and going, 
all these other people could too. Even if they've currently been victimized by society, because if you're a, if you're a, a generational welfare family, you have been victimized by our country. The, the free stuff they gave you literally was a, a horrible, horrible plague on your life and your future. And it's going to take something to pull people out of that. It's going to take a lot to pull people out of that. But you understand once you start doing it for yourself, well, I, I, if I can do it, they can do it. So it removes fear. It also directly addresses programming and domestication. When you start looking at the situation and you say, for instance, security, I need to be more responsible for my security. And your friend or your spouse says, well, that's what the police are for. Well, hold on. Let's say somebody's breaking in that window right now and you call the police. How long is it going to be before they get here? And should we just ask the man to sit down with us and play canasto until the cops get here? Well, see, it's that, that immediately cracks that program. Well, the, the police are here to protect you. Well, they can't protect me. I mean, I've been on pretty hard lately about you know removing, protect, and serve, and the police should protect you. And in some instances, they have an opportunity to protect you. But generally, day-to-day, police can't protect you. Their presence may deter crime, but they can't directly protect you. If you're walking down the street, and I'm not worried about being incarcerated, and I want your leg broke, there's no cop that's following you around going, oh, gee, look, there's Jack Spierko with a freaking uh, two-pound mini sledgehammer. He's about to kneecap him. There's nothing you can do. You're not even going to expect that I'm going to walk up on you and do this. So I'm going to walk up to you, crack, your leg's broke. Well, now the police can arrest me, but they didn't protect you. Please tell me how they protected you. See, we've been programmed like police provide protection. No, the police provide law enforcement. They're not called protection officers. They're called law enforcement officers. At least they're accurate about the way they call them. This is not even a judgment of cops at this point. That's just a fundamental evaluation. So if I'm going to be responsible for my security then immediately I see all the vulnerabilities that I have. And I don't want to be paranoid about it, but I want to beef up my basic security. And all of the things that supposedly provide me security are seen as being not quite really doing that. And I realize I've always been responsible for my own security. And the first failure, I will be the first responder. The point of failure, I will always be the first responder to my own security issues. And... and, and Even I can't be 100% effective. If you're walking down the street and somebody just decided they want to kill somebody at random, and they don't even say a word to you, and you're walking in a crowded, busy street, and they walk up behind you, point a gun at your head and pull the trigger, your problems are solved. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's the illusion of security. Broke it. Remember we had the, the, the law enforcement officer on recently, Pat and Leo? And he said that the reason he teaches lockpicking is it, it des- destroys the, 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 the illusion of security that your door lock has for you. Well, I'm going to say I'm destroying for you the illusion of security that you think the state is providing for you. And we can do that with everything else. And because of that, it addresses programming. And when we, when we realize, hey, like this is a vulnerability. I could go without food because of this, right? Or I could be eating food I really don't want to eat because of this. Or I could get hurt because of this. Or my kids could be uh, adversely affected because of And you say, well, then what do I need to do to make sure that doesn't happen? You begin to break the domestication process. Because that's how humans worked. 
That's how humans have worked for tens and tens and tens of thousands of years, depending on what you believe about anthropology, hundreds of thousands of years. That that's how humans worked. There was no state till about 10,000 years ago. It was the first hint of a state. The dawn of agriculture began the statehood process. And it's really about 6,000 years ago, the first civilizations that were truly state-like really came into existence. So how do we get along? Well, that's what we did every day. So as soon as we begin to act like wild humans, see, we've been, see, we've been so programmed. You say, if somebody's a wild human, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Well, would you rather eat domestic trout or wild trout? Is wild a bad thing? Is a trout a danger to other trout? No. I guess with the little bitty ones and big ones, you understand what I'm saying. The trout's not an evil creature because it's wild. Is a deer an evil creature because it's wild? What well, it eats our domestic corn? Hmm. Maybe that's the conflict. Because deer don't tend to destroy ecosystems that are wild. Only ones that are domestic. It's this domestication process that we need to reverse. And preparedness directly addresses that. It causes you to behave like a normal person which is a wild human, not a domesticated human. If you think being a wild human sounds bad, think about this. If you're not a wild human, you're a domesticated human. Doesn't that sound worse? You're a domesticated man. You're a domesticated woman. That means people have programmed you to behave the way they want you to behave rather than the way that makes the best sense for you. That's how cows behave. Because if cows behaved in the way that made the best sense for them, they'd run over us and kill us and go out in the woods and figure out how to live on whatever's out there. Because in the end, we know what's going to happen. They're going to get a bolt through the head, and they're going to end up dead. But they do what we want because we domesticated them. Oh, for the love of God, do not be a domesticated human any longer. Seriously. The next one is it requires something that's been pounded out of us. Preparedness requires independent thought. If you notice... My last tenet of modern survival philosophy has always been that you have to develop your own program, your own solutions. I just give you tenets and guidelines, and you have to actually put it together. What you do matters, and you have to do things for yourself. You have to choose what is at most risk for you, what your resources are. There's no way that I can just say, look, here's all you got to do. Send me a check for $10,000. And I'll have a truck come to your house with a fork, little full, unload a couple crates, take everything out of those crates, put it where the diagram says in your house, and you'll be prepared. Can't do it. It's impossible. I have refused, and I've been offered so many times, but I have refused to even basically spec out a bug out bag. I've had so many different people come to me and say, what we'll do is we'll have you spec out the bug out bag and explain why everything's in there, and then we'll mark and sell and give you a royalty on it. No. I don't know what you need in your bug out bag. I don't know what you can carry. I don't know what's legal where you are and what isn't. I don't know what your individual situation is. So what does this mean? What, is, what has been drummed out of us? All this means you have to have to be prepared. Independent thought. Independent thought. You know, I mentioned The Simpsons earlier. I like to do pop culture references once in a while. But there is an episode of The Simpsons. I don't remember what it's about. But they get colored chalk at the school. And when the groundskeeper Willie's like, you know, it's dangerous to have colored chalk. And then, like, later in the episode, this thing, this, like, alert goes off in the principal's office. And it says, independent thought alarm. 
and, and Willie's like, I told you about the, 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 the colored chalk, you know? And, and, and it's like, the, but it's, it's so true. That it actually, when we, we have children that are labeled as troublemakers in school, and I'm not talking about kids going around beating other kids up or bullying other kids. Those kids actually usually get away with it. But the, the troublemakers that always come to the attention of the teachers and get pushed back to the parents are just simply kids with independent thoughts. Why are we doing this? Why do I have to know this? Isn't there another way to look at this? But that doesn't, it, I don't really think I'm going to use this for the rest of my life. Those are independent thoughts. Sometimes they're very accurate independent thoughts. So when we prep, we develop that independent thought that's been drummed out of us. It's also counter to the norm and requires action. So the normal person is not prepared. I mean, if you look at our country, if we ever came under some sort of real catechism, we would have a lot of trouble really, really fast. This is why, you know, one storm comes into town and there's not a loaf of bread left on the, on the shelves. Bread and milk is gone, right? And people make jokes about it, but yet they're in there buying the bread and milk. Somebody's doing it. This is why there's lines with people getting in fights for gasoline when the gas station pumps haven't run for three freaking days. Because we're not prepared. So the normal course of action in life is people aren't prepared. They spend more money than they have on credit. They're not financially prepared. They have no plan for what to do if they lost their house. So they're not prepared from a shelter standpoint. They have no extra food whatsoever. Whatever's in the pantry that just happens to be there, that's it. They have, water's free, and yet they won't put any amount of water up. They have no, no plan what's going to happen if the power gets shut off the house for more than a day. No plan whatsoever. And all this stuff is pretty easy to do. And their security plan is to dial 911 and wait while they're being kidnapped or raped or shot or beaten or tortured or whatever it is. That's their plan. So you have something that requires independent thought that's also counter to what everybody else is doing. You have to swim upstream instead of floating downstream. And it requires action. That causes a switch to happen. When you take an action counter to the norm and it actually benefits you, it makes you question everything about what's normal. And you start to look around and realize, I'm not the crazy one. And maybe these people on Doomsday Preppers are nuts. Or maybe they've just been made to look nuts by creative uh, producers. But, the, but they're both nuts as far as I could see. But this basic common sense approach, this is, this is normal. This is responsible adulthood. So it starts to break that cycle even further. And sooner or later, it pays off. And then you stop questioning yourself because you know it works. It takes one power outage. Where your wife goes, oh, what are we going to do? And you go, hold on. You go click on the emergency lights in the, uh, the hallway and go plug into your Stephen Harris battery bank and start charging up AA batteries and go out and get the generator out and fire it up and hook up the little TV so you're using less of the power so you can put the news on and find out what the hell's going on and, uh, you know, throw a couple blankets over the refrigerator and freezer and if it stays off for a while, run it for a couple hours at a time off the generator. Of course, the water's not working too because of, you know, electric pumps in the city or whatever and it's a big outage. So, but then you pull the bottle of water down off of the counter and, Everybody, everything's just fine. And what are we going to do for dinner? And you go outside and fire up the propane burner or whatever you have, and you make spaghetti, and everybody sits down and eats it and knows everything's going to be okay. 
Like, it just takes one of those. And there's a hundred different versions of that. I've heard so many of them from members of this audience. But then it's like, oh, this works. And then all of a sudden, buying, you know, radiation tablets from Alex Jones doesn't make sense anymore either. It's all this practical preparedness. And what we need to actually be teaching our children is that they have a personal responsibility for the following things. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, finance, health, and education. Now, here's the thing. If you look at the government programming centers, a.k.a. public schools, you, you realize they actually do teach kids some useful information about all of those things. They, you know, they teach you what the food pyramid or the food plate or whatever the hell it is. Now you have a nutrition class, you know, they, so they do do that. And, uh, yeah, you learn about water, at least from the water fountain and you probably some stuff in health class and science class. You learn about shelter and if you even, you know, if you live in the South, shelter in place for tornadoes and stuff like that. You have some, you know, you have physical science, you learn about energy. Uh, they teach you about security. They even tell you, hey, you know what? You're in big trouble if you pull that fire alarm, but if you see a fire, Pull the alarm. If you get in trouble, come to a teacher, come to a police officer. So there's some level of addressment of security. Finance, that's probably one of their weaker places. But I did learn some things about money in school, I'll admit that. Health, you've got health classes and education. Well, they tell you that's the whole most important thing about it, and you're getting a valuable education there. But see, what you're missing, if you, if you take that approach, is they don't teach us that it's our personal responsibility to see to those needs. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Jack, you can't tell a five-year-old kid that he's personally responsible for making sure he has food to eat. No, but you can tell him that his parents are, not the state. And that when he grows up and he's an adult, he's going to be personally responsible for himself to provide food. And that when he has children, if he chooses to have children, he'll be personally responsible for them. And he should be personally responsible not just to make sure they're going to eat tonight, but tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next year. There should be a plan for food security because food is the most important thing in the world. Instead, what we're taught is, well, if you don't have enough money, we'll give you free lunch. And by the way, we'll provide you free breakfast as well. The state will provide it. And if you have enough money for your own lunch and you eat breakfast at home, we need to do this for your fellow students because there's no way it can possibly be accomplished unless we do it. You see the difference there. With water, you're taught, hey, We have clean water because there's laws that make us have clean water. But you're not taught, well, sometimes even with the best intentions, water becomes unavailable or can become not clean anymore. And you should personally be responsible to make sure that you're going to have water for yourself and your family. We don't teach that, do we? I mean, do we teach that at all? Do we learn that in school? Do we learn that as young adults? Do we learn that in university? We're going to send somebody off to college $20,000 a year. They don't even learn that they should be personally responsible for their own food and water. They take a student loan, pay a fee to the school, who provides them a cafeteria to get the food from. Shelter. Well, you know, shelter is one of those things that you, you just don't seem like you need to worry about it a lot until it's not available anymore. But we don't really teach, you don't even teach kids you know, in the basic economic components of their education, this is what it takes to own a house. This is what it takes to insure a house. This is how you do that. This is how you make a decision between renting and buying. And hey, by the way, if you're lost in the woods, this is how you shelter yourself so the elements don't kill you. I don't teach that. Energy. 
You know, we talk all about green energy. I'm sure the kids in school get an earful about saving the polar bears and their dad's evil for his big gas-burning vehicle and he should buy a hybrid and, and, you know, solar panels are the future. But do we actually teach children to be responsible for their own energy? Do we teach young adults to be responsible for their own energy? That you can do it? That it's a good thing to do? Or the government should impose it? You see the difference? What about security? We teach children they're absolutely not allowed to be responsible for their own security. If you stand up to a bully, you're in just as much trouble as the bully. The antithesis of, of being responsible for your own security. We tell them not to talk to strangers, but we don't tell them how to find somebody to help them when they need somebody to help them and there's not a police officer with a special shiny badge around. We don't teach them situational awareness. We don't teach them, hey, this type of aggression is wrong and should be stood up against. We teach them specifically not to stand up against aggression. So how can they be responsible for their own security? With finance. They might talk a little bit about taxes. I remember in school we learned at least about what Social Security was. I took accounting courses for math credits for some of my high school, so that probably helped a little bit. We didn't really learn about true economics. And I had two economics uh, classes in high school. You learn economic theory, but you only personal economics. At least, they, at least they used to have home economics, which really wasn't about economics at all, but it was at least how to do shit. They don't have that anymore. But we don't teach kids how to balance a freaking checkbook. We, I mean, and we certainly don't teach them truly about savings. We teach them about savings for retirement. We don't teach children in this country to be responsible for their own economic future. Our version of being responsible for your economic future is get a good education so you can get a good job. That's not responsible for your economic future. That's usually getting yourself in a student debt that you'll never be able to repay. That's usually what that works out to. What about health? We have health classes. Do we teach children that they're personally responsible for their health? No, we say, this is what the government says you're supposed to eat. How about when you eat something and it makes you don't where you don't feel good, makes you feel tired or whatever? Maybe you shouldn't eat that anymore. Maybe you should figure that out for yourself what those things are. Well, kids will eat pop tarts all the time. Yeah, let them. First of all, where are they going to get the pop tarts from? You have to buy them for them, right? So maybe they wouldn't if they didn't have access to them. And maybe if they wanted them, they would develop access to them. And maybe they would figure out real quick that it's probably not worth it. Maybe they would ration them. I have a friend whose, whose son rations his Pop-Tart allowance that he gets every year. But we don't teach kids to be responsible for their own health. We teach them, go to the nurse. Do what the doctor says. We don't teach them how to identify any, any sort of health problems. And if they have issues like they don't want to sit still and pay attention, we put drugs in them. Rather than saying, well, what do you need to be able to focus How can we create an environment where you can go educate yourself? Because that's the last one. Yeah, education. Man, we almost we almost make education a, a worship concept or a worship word. There's an old there's an old episode of the original series of Star Trek that takes place on a planet that looks just like Earth, except the communists won, and the Americans are like native Native Americans living out on the plains being hunted. And they have a, a torn, tattered American flag. It's really weird. But at one point, Kirk says freedom. And they say, you're not supposed to say that word. That's a worship word. 
It's a worship word. That's how we've made education. It's like a worship word. It's 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 hollowed. It's it's something that's sacred. And only special people can be educators with special credentials by the state. And we we literally by putting children into that type of an educational model and tell them the teacher's always right, convince them of the fact that they need someone to teach them. We, we, we've removed the concept of self-responsibility for self-education from our society. Well, if we go into the world of preparedness, we have to address all of those things. We have to become personally responsible for food, water, shelter, energy, security, finance, health, and education. We have to be self-directed learners. We have to look at our health and say, hey, if the shit hits the fan... These health problems I have are going to make things worse on me. I need to address them, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because, hey, it could be even worse. And I have the opportunity now, and I may not have the opportunity then. We have to look economically and say, hey, maybe we can't just spend money like this anymore. All of the things that have been programmed into us become unwired as we move from domesticated to wild human beings. Because wild human beings don't necessarily live in a tree. They live in a really nice house. But they behave like the natural human being that they are. And that's why the system will never take this approach. There will never be a state-mandated education system that teaches our children that these things are their personal responsibility. Because that would remove the need of the state to provide it. So when we move into this world, we can't help but head toward greater liberty. And I've heard from people that have taken this walk, listening to this show over the years, that have started out all the way to the left politically and all the way to the right politically. And if they take the walk long enough, whether they believe what I'm saying about the political body here or not, they end up there. And they don't end up there because of the power of my words and, and, and the, the truism of voluntarism. No. They end up there because as you take the approach of becoming responsible for all these things yourself, you become in touch with the innate liberty that lives in your heart. And once that happens, there's no going back. You can't go back. It's impossible. It literally is, you know, the red pill. You, once you know what freedom is, You can't, you, you might even at some point crave domestication. You know, when I had Pat DeLeo on, he said, when I was blindly patriotic and believed everything that the, the, the state did was right, I was happier. Sure you were. But you can't go back. The reason you're not happy is because now you know you're not free, but the beauty of that is now you can do something about it. Now you can look for every crack in the fence, every crack in the gate, every every little hole you can peek through through the door and figure out how to undo a lock and get a little bit closer to true liberty. Now you can take action. Once you know about the problem, you can address it. Preparedness is one great way to address the problem of a lack of liberty and freedom in your life. Because what you'll learn, and this is why the system is shit scared of, of alternative media, of the liberty movement, of the preparedness movement, 95% of your oppression is in your head. 
Only 5% is real. 95% of what you think you want to do that you don't think you can, there is a way to do. There is a way to figure out. There is an escape route. And they don't want you to know that. Because what happens if, like, I don't know, 51% of people know that? Holy shit. You see them now. They know. Oh, my God, they know. It's over. It's over. Well, here's the bad news. The programming's very effective. And in our lifetime, we're probably not going to wake up 51% of the people or more like the 60% to 70% to really, really shift the, the, the gears. We can make up, wake up five. And this is the next generation's responsibility if we do a good job to wake up another five. And, you know, this is, I've always said this type of liberty movement is a seventh generational thinking model. You have to be thinking seven generations out. You have to look out and think that great, 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 great grandson and granddaughter are worth the work you're doing today, even though you will never know them, and they may never know you. But what you do today will help them in their time. And what you do today will help you in your time. See, it's back to the show credo. The whole thing is so much bigger than you think it is. Helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, helping yourself live a better life today and your children live a better life tomorrow if times get tough or even if they don't. Because these concepts of liberty and independence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency are such truisms that no amount of hype, no amount of programming, no amount of lying can ever truly destroy them. They will always be true because they always were true. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I really do. I hope it's put a new perspective in place for you on what freedom and liberty really are and the role preparedness plays in them. And if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is you can support us by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. To do that, just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And there's a link there. You can click, you go over to Amazon, you see their deals of the day. And you can search for things that you want to buy, like things you already were going to buy. You buy those, we're the affiliate that referred you to Amazon, we get credit for it. But we also put up reviews every day. Today I have something I've, I've used many times to make an illustration of being, you know, to be frugal but not cheap, the garden hose. Um, the Gilmore Pro commercial garden hose is the best garden hose I've ever found. I have three of them on my property. And uh, I never really cared to, to, to be very, you know, worried about the brand, honestly. Um, I found these hoses at Home Depot a couple years ago. I went and I touched it. I said, that seems pretty good. And I brought one home and went, I'm getting some more of these because they're just awesome. It's a heavy-duty rubber. They're very pliable. They don't kink. Now, you can kink one, but they don't, in general, they just don't kink. Uh, the, the, the brass fittings on them are really, really solid, really heavy-duty. The only one that's failed so far, um, the, the, the brass fitting on the, uh, not on the, the one that screws onto the, the faucet, but the terminal end uh, is gone because my wife ran it over with a lawn tractor. So, yeah, they don't survive being run over with a lawn tractor, but everything else they're, they're pretty good about. That one, we just cut the end off of it, and we're good to go again. Um, and the reason I decided to do this as a deal of the day is... I just realized, well, these contractor-grade red hoses from Home Depot are pretty good. So about a few weeks ago, I was like, I need another hose. And I was at Home Depot, and I just ran through real quick and said, oop, contractor-grade red hose, Home Depot, boom, grabbed it, brought it home. It was made by a company called um, Contractor Farm, 
and it's supposed to be a contractor grade, you know, super duper hose. Fittings on it were great. It's a piece of shit. It's a piece of shit. It sucks. It kinks. Like, just unwinding it, it was kinking. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I come home, I look at my three good hoses, and they all say Gilmore. G-I-L-M-O-U-R. Gilmore. And so I looked these up on Amazon. They have them on Amazon, and they're actually about the same price as they used to be at Home Depot. And I had somebody comment on the review already that said he's at Home De he works at Home Depot and he recommends only these. They don't, my local Home Depot, Home Depot doesn't have them anymore. And when I look them up on their website, they're there on the site. There's there's no button to actually order them and put them into your shopping cart. So I I don't know if they're discontinuing them or what because they make more money off these crappy piece of crap ones uh, from Contractor Farm. But this is the hose you want. Um, I mean, there's not much else to say, right? But I'll tell you why it works so good. Because it's not plastic, it's not vinyl, it's rubber, and it's heavy-gauge rubber. That, that's what you're looking for. If you look for any hose, uh, when you're physically inspecting it, I'll tell you from now on, if you're going to buy a hose, I don't care if it says never kink, because I call those ones ever kink, right? Um, you need to actually, the, 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 the twist ties and wires around it, you need to actually take enough of it apart to get a couple feet of that hose out and just try bending it. And if it's rubber, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flex. And if it's not thick, heavy-gauge rubber, it's going to kink. And then you put it back on the shelf, you don't want that one. All right? This one, I'm going to tell you, is the best one that I've found, especially for the money. A 50-foot one is 25 bucks. A 100-foot one is 48 bucks. So I, I, I can't find a better value. So the one I recommend, and remember this, um, you should stop dealing with crappy garden hoses, guys, because life is too short to deal with a kink in your hose. It just is. You can get the Gilmore Pro at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and start looking up all of our reviews. And, uh, again, whenever you shop on Amazon through tspaz, you help us. Check out this one, guys. Next time you buy a hose, buy a good one. Even if it's not this one, find a good heavy-gauge rubber hose. Be frugal, not cheap. All right, with that, let's talk about the uh, song of the day. And it's a great song for the uh, topic that we talked about today. This is Civil War by Guns N' Roses, which was released in 1991, which is why we're doing it in episode 1991. I think what a lot of people miss when they hear this song is they think, well, it's about you know civil war for, like, I guess, you know, the United States Civil War, the war between the states, or a typical civil war. It's really not. It's about the two sides of the dichotomy, you know, waging war, whether it be actual warfare, whether it be things like, you know, civil rights, but just using us against each other. That's what this song's really about. Think about that in relation to all of the things that we talked about today. And you might hear this song in a new way today if you do it that way. Because there are two mafia families. The Democrats and Republicans, while they're doing the same thing in different ways, really are fighting for control. And then they have their own puppet masters. And some of the puppet masters work both of them. And some work one side or the other. And then they use that dichotomy to bifurcate humanity. First you domesticate them, then you put them into you know, different groups, you get them fighting with each other, that way they stay in the corral so you can lead them right to the slaughterhouse. That's what this song is really all about. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants. Well, he gets. I don't like it anymore.
What's so civil about war anyway?